Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Holyrood magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Holyrood magazine. It's very difficult to sort of get an idea of where the talks are at the moment, because all the, the language coming out of it is basically useless. You know, he said it's, it's very tricky but hope springs eternal. And it's, I mean, that isn't really technical language, so it's quite hard to keep up with exactly what they're still disputing. I think, as you say, it's fishing and uh, competition rules between businesses. Don't you feel that for 2020, a no deal is just probably the likely scenario given everything else that's been crap about 2020? It's a bit of a roundabout way to get to your answer, Mandy, but, you know, it's, it's important to, to, to know that, that we have committed to become more accessible, more affordable and more people and planet positive in every decision that we make. I think I read a piece in The Lancet that said in the last year, something like 7.8 million new followers to all kinds of anti-vaxxing social media accounts had, had gone up. I tell you, no one is enjoying this podcast as much as Joe the Wheaton Terrier. Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That is a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I have a pretty obvious bad week this week. I thought I'd go in on that because it's actually quite an obvious good week as well, but that's a very, very good week. So I thought it'd be better to end on a positive note on this one. Um, So bad week are the prospects of a Brexit deal. Um, yeah. It does look like there's the, the chances of a no-deal Brexit are increasing. Boris Johnson said today that uh, he hopes the power of sweet reason will allow the UK and EU to reach a trade deal this week. But it, to be honest, it's looking less and less likely as time passes. I'm not sure if that's a big surprise to you, but I think it probably is pretty bad news if you're relying on any sort of trade with the EU for your business. Yeah, it allowed for lots of headlines about floundering on fish. Um yeah, and sweet reason. I'm not quite sure that's going to get anywhere, is it? But Boris Johnson apparently is getting ready to fly over to Brussels to to try and seal a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the thing is, we've left the EU. I think that's what yeah, lots of yeah. people might forget. You know, we've had this terrible year with COVID, um, but we've left the EU. But we're now nearing the end of the transition period, and we still have no deal. And there's just so many issues still to be resolved it's very difficult to sort of get an idea of where the talks are at the moment because all the the language coming out of it is basically useless you know he said it's it's very tricky but hope springs eternal (laughs) i mean that isn't really technical language so it's quite hard to keep up with exactly what they're still disputing i think as you say it's fishing and uh competition rules between businesses yeah and i think you know the bottom line is oh can you hold on a second (laughs) hold on That's the there's someone at the door. I don't know if we'll use this as part of the podcast, but it's probably worth mentioning that Mandy's dog is actually loose in the office just now. Uh, Joe, a Wheaton Terrier, of uh, with some energy, and he's currently trying to protect us from a number of workmen outside, which I'm I for one am very grateful for. Yeah, the door the dog was trying to open the fire door there, um, which I think he could do because he could press on it. I'll tell you, no one is enjoying this podcast as much as Joe, the Wheaton Terrier. <laughs> Look at him go, nah, I say we just keep all this. Sorry. I don't know why we don't have a blooper thing on this podcast. <laughs> right. Where, where, where were we? Um, we were. I was just saying that one of the issues that seems to be tripping them up is fishing rights and competition between businesses. 
Yeah, I think the interesting thing about all of this is when we've had um, all of the people around Boris, and I think you've got to remember with this particular cabinet, it, at the top it's nearly all Brexiteers, so it wasn't the same issues that Theresa May suffered from with the so-called Gawkwood squad. Um, you remember with David Gawk, Philip Hammond, Greg Clark and Amber Rudd, who were really, um, I guess, the the people that we may feel were bringing some reason to the game, there doesn't appear to be the same kind of dissension. So Boris, people around him all seem to be quiet about what is happening. But the um, but James, not so cleverly, actually said at the weekend that it might well be that we don't get a deal. And yeah. I guess when they're saying that, you then begin to worry. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to escape the feeling that that was the plan all along, to be honest. You know, the... I, th- I don't. I don't really. Uh, there's never been a stage in the last couple of years where I thought they had realistic, cr- credible plans for how they would actually compromise with the EU and get a deal that they'd be happy with. Yeah, I think. I, do you know though? We've been waiting. It's almost as if this was always going to happen, as you say. And despite all the warnings, and in fact, the the Guardian's got a cabinet office document that was leaked, basically outlining the devastation of a worst case no deal scenario, um, and it is horrific. But Boris may well be saved by Keir Starmer, who I guess may whip his the Labour politicians into voting with whatever deal can be cobbled together because it's going to be better than a no deal. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, I suppose there's a question about whether the, the kind of pro-Remain side or the people that supported a, a much softer Brexit could have maybe compromised a bit earlier with Theresa May and maybe we wouldn't have been in this situation now. I think it's probably a bit unfair to blame them for a no deal brexit because you know they didn't run that the campaign saying that everything would be fine and it'd be the easiest deal in history and all the cards were in the uk's favor but at the same time i don't know i mean maybe they, they could have been a little bit more conciliatory when there was a some sort of deal on the table oh retrospect's a great thing isn't it Liam? well that's i mean yeah because i mean eventually it's also it's not going to be labor that's that this isn't going to be labor's legacy you know the yeah. brexit whatever whether it's good or bad is a, is a conservative move don't you feel that for 2020, a no deal is just probably the likely scenario, given everything else that's been crap about 2020? Well, I, don't know, I think 2020 is looking up, actually, which in a way does bring me to my good week. Um, oh, no, because I've still got a bad week, which is, this is probably your last podcast with us. <laughs> yeah, that is. That's a, that's a bad week for you. <laughs> yeah, we can debate that. Um, no, but you're leaving me after six and a half years. This Seven, is like a breakup, yeah. isn't I, it? I, 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 I sound like Tony Blackburn. No, it's, it's true. It's, it's seven years of, in January. So if, if I leave mid. December. I'm two weeks off seven years at Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, it's been a lot's happened. I know. <laughs> and it's also quite hard leaving during the pandemic because we're not all together. We can't have a proper Hollywood going away party. Piss up. I know. What's happened yeah. in the last seven years? Well, I mean, that's yeah. the thing. It's just odd, isn't it? Because I was actually just thinking this about the, the Brexit talks as well. On the one hand, it feels like a million years. And on the other hand, it feels like about a week, you know? I, know. I think because if you think, you know, when you go into political journalism, usually you imagine you're going to have an election every four years or so. I can't think how many elections I've covered now. Been well, you've covered two referendums. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was just two. No, was there AVE? Was that before I arrived? I don't God, know. Okay. Yeah, I, arrived, I arrived nine months before the independence referendum. Um, and then it just, it never really calmed down. I thought that, I thought maybe 2015 would, 15 would be a bit, rocky but it's just never got normal i know it's been incredible and look uh, look what it's made you do it's made you leave journalism i know it's made me snap 
mentally. No. Yeah. Tell, tell us where you're going. So I'm going to work for Crisis, and actually just around the corner from from Holyrood, so it's very close by. Um, I'm going to do some comms and public affairs stuff. So that's, that's the homeless charity. Yeah, sorry, I should have said that. Yes, homeless, homeless, national homeless charity Crisis. So I'm very excited to be going there, but obviously it is a shame to to leave Holyrood, especially because yeah, it's, I feel almost institutionalised to be honest. <laughs> so it's it's quite weird to leave a place after seven years, and actually, a lot of people don't stay in jobs that long now. I know, it's like losing one of my children. I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> one of my children, I've only got one, <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> You'd think I would know, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, it, it, I suppose what's interesting for me um, as a reflection on all of this is that a lot of the journalists that come to Holyrood end up moving into other areas rather than going on to other media jobs. Yeah, no, it's that's true actually. Um, I guess it's because it is a slightly more policy-heavy publication. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, bad news for us. But, yeah. Um, you know, we wish you well. Thanks, Mandy. And uh, need to get some of the other journalists involved in the podcast now. Going. Oh yeah, forward. that's that's the one upshot from this. People <laughs> won't have to listen to me talking about this stuff anymore. <laughs> I don't know. We might do things on homelessness, and I'll be coming to get oh, that's you. True. Yeah, I'll, I'll be sending you stories. Don't worry. It'll be actually it'll be very proactive stuff. So you, I'll be in touch. I suspect I might meet you just on the Royal Mile as we're both going for a coffee. Yeah, exactly. Well, once we're allowed all back into offices and stuff. I know. Anyway, moving on from that very quickly, you know how fickle I am. Let's talk about the good news, which is clearly the first vaccines um, arriving and being given. Yeah, yeah. So that was very exciting. We saw a 90-year-old woman getting the first vaccine. I I know we don't agree on this, but I do not think that woman looks 90. Um, (laughs) She she looked far, far younger to me. So I don't know what else is in the vaccine because I want it. Yeah, so do Um, I. And then Um, she was closely, yeah, then we followed by by uh, Bill Shakespeare as well, actually. That was quite exciting. So, yeah. I mean, I suppose, the, uh, you know, so I guess we need to be able to say that that's good news for Britain, good news for Scotland. I think our first injections also start today. Mm. Um, so it'll be uh, NHS staff and care homes, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah, starting starting there and then widening it out. Uh, we've got yeah. our big fridges. MI5 has told Gene Freeman not to tell anyone where they are. Um, so that's important to keep quiet. If you see a big fridge, don't tell anyone. Um, I'm I'm not looking for them. Don't worry. I've got a really small freezer, which is always quite surprising. Mm, I've actually long thought that you didn't work for MI5. <laughs> I've just got a small ice box. All oh, right, that's actually that does surprise me. You strike you strike me as someone that would have a huge amount of like food storage space. I know you've been stockpiling. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I, we we did, but we've inherited this fridge freezer in the house that we bought so at some point it'll be replaced by a big fridge but by that time I'm also hoping that we'll all be vaccinated um so for me this just feels like really good news it has been a crap year and um it's good to end it on people starting to get vaccinated and hopefully it means that 2021 will be a fabulous year well so it makes things a lot nicer going into christmas to be honest because you know i'm having really awkward chats with different people about whether i can see them or not and just the knowledge that you're going to be able to at some point fairly soon does make it so much easier to sort of face that doesn't it yeah one piece of good good news that I should quickly mention is that Hollywood scooped up some awards at the PPA Scotland Magazine Awards, including you, Mandy. You won columnist of the year and editor of the year. 
I know, I'm just a star, Liam, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, very well done. And Gemma, uh, Gemma Fraser, one of the writers on the magazine, won Writer of the Year. So that's fantastic yeah. news. Delighted about that. And you also won an award this week as well from Zero Tolerance, didn't you? Yeah, I'm surprised. I didn't, I didn't know I was going to win that, actually. That was very exciting. Yeah, so that was the Right to End Violence Against Women Awards. And it was for a specific piece on how no recourse to public funds is stopping women from accessing support, women that are experiencing abuse from getting into refuges and things like that. No, a really important piece. So if you want to read award-winning content, you need to be reading Hollywood magazine. Oh, yeah, go Hollywood. And the other good news, which again is, you know, a little hat tip to Boris Johnson, I guess, is um, about climate change. And he has drastically uh, upped the ante, if you like, on our carbon emission targets. Mm -hmm. So some will say that this is the influence of his fiancée, Carrie Simmons, um, but he has put in place pretty ambitious targets now for 2030. Yeah, so he's he's bumped up the the target a bit. Um, so you know the, the aim is now to cut emissions by sixty eight percent by twenty thirty, based on nineteen ninety levels. So that's pre pre Kyoto, basically. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's probably worth mentioning actually. Scotland already has tougher targets than that. Um, yeah. Scotland's aiming for seventy five percent cut by twenty thirty and to be carbon uh, to be net zero by twenty forty five. So actually, in a way. It doesn't affect Scottish policy too much, except that so many of the leapers obviously are at a UK level. So it's yeah, it's, it's very significant. And we're all living in the same environment. We are, yes. Well, I mean, I, like I think it kind of feeds into the whole, you know, obviously for next year, we've got COP26 coming to Glasgow, postponed COP26 coming in November. Um, so there's a, the, the whole green agenda is very much on the agenda. Um, and I think as well with the pandemic, we've heard a lot about building back better, building back green. Um, and there's some rhetoric, but there's also, there are companies putting that into action. And in fact, I've just done an interview with IKEA very much about what they've been doing. And they've been sort of ahead of the curve, I guess, on this. They put in place a strategy in 2012 about their sustainability. And they've got I'm going to say ambitious targets again, but around their own um, carbon emissions and also the way that they treat staff and well-being and a lot of the things that we're now discussing more mainstream, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I've done an interview with Hege Sebjonsson, uh, who's the country sustainability manager for I the IKEA group in the UK and Ireland. And we're going to listen to that now. I think um, the pandemic has been a time for businesses to rethink and reset and there's lots of talk about building back better and building back green and I guess in some respects IKEA has been ahead of that curve you've been on that journey so how do, how do you get beyond nice words and wishful thinking? Oh that's a great question Mandy I think um, you know we've had well, first of all, um, most of the time, I don't need to introduce IKEA to people, certainly not in the UK and, and Scotland. If I'm in an audience with people and I ask who in this room has something from IKEA in their homes, as you can expect, most people, you know, raise their hands. So so we are a familiar household and we've been around for a long time. So that puts us in, in quite a unique position. So I'd like to highlight that we've, you know, in the 75 years we've been around, it's always been a core kind of aspect of who 
who we are. You know, we're a purpose-led company. Our, our, our vision is to create a better everyday life for the many people. So, so we're, we're lucky in that respect. You know, it starts from a good foundation. We've got that as sort of part of our DNA. But of course, as for many companies, we've started now to see a whole new level of the importance of taking our total sustainability agenda to the new level. And for us, that means the, you know, the people aspect, the community aspect, the environmental and the economic. So it's an absolutely holistic framework of how we look completely with new eyes on how we build back better. I mean, in some ways, because you're a business, there has to be both a case for it being sustainable, but also being profitable. And I think probably that's part of the fear for many businesses. Can you do this and still make a living for us it's a very clear yes absolutely you cannot separate you know the three dimensions of sustainability we can't forget that sustainability doesn't just mean green it doesn't just mean you know being good for the sake of it although of course it is right to do the right thing um you know to give an example we are about you know the the products and services that we sell to provide well-designed, affordable home furnishing for the many people at a price that everyone can afford. That's that's what we're founded on. So of course we're a business, but what we do see, and even more so than ever, is that being a good business and doing, doing business in the right way is absolutely you know imperative to not only remain relevant for the future, but also to remain um, accessible to the many, and also both from a perception of how customers want to shop. They want customers. Uh, sorry, they want business businesses to do the right thing. They want proof that we're doing the right thing. But we also need to look after the resources that our business relies on. So we cannot uh, you know, rely on virgin materials, for example, for all our products for the next, you know, decades ahead. We know that's not going to be viable or sustainable for our business. So, so there are many reasons and aspects that makes the business case, if you like, for sustainability very, very clear. Um, and I can also highlight that, of course, we are again in a in a unique position because we also provide products and services that directly supports people to be sustainable in their day to day life. So we also see that need and how we provide customers with solutions to you know reduce energy in their homes to waste to waste less food to manage food and food waste in the home waste management how our products are made from sustainable materials etc so there are only good reasons for taking sustainability um, absolutely serious for the financial viability of a business as well I mean, for you, this is not some newfangled invention, if you like, because IKEA's sustainability strategy was launched eight years ago. Um, and, it, and even at that point, people and planet positive, um, it was about the whole, the whole thing. It wasn't just about products. It was about people. It was about the planet. Can you just talk to through where you've got to on that eight year journey? Yeah, no, for sure. And and I think, again, just, just um, reminding ourselves again of when we started, you know, when I joined IKEA just under six years ago, you know, you start with looking at when Ingvar Kamprad founded the company. And there's this wonderful, evocative uh, image that uh, actually, particularly the audiences in Scotland can probably relate to. You know, it's a it's a rocky environment with a stone wall. And, and that was a kind of a an image from where Ingwar Kamprad grew up, you know, it was a very arid area with very few resources. And it was about making the most of resources, looking after people 
and understanding the value of, of people's quality of life. So, you know, it started there and even prior, prior, prior to eight years ago, of course, we were on a journey around workers' rights, it's about child's rights, it's about the co-workers' rights. So that, that's been a long journey. But just to give you and everyone a little bit of an update around the, the People and Planet Positive Strategy, which is the IKEA Sustainability Strategy. I think it's worth highlighting, first of all, that it's not a CSR program. You know, it's it's not a siloed strategy that sits on the side of core business. And this is, this is really critical because it's one of the three main um, approaches and directions that governs the total business. And this is really critical because, again, it's integrated into every decision that we make. Um, and it's a little bit of a roundabout way to get to your answer, Mandy, but, you know, it's, it's important to, to, to know that, that we have committed to become more accessible, more affordable and more people and planet positive in every decision that we make. And then to say a little bit about what that means then. So we have three aspects and pillars to our people and planet positive strategy. One focus is how we mainstream and make sustainable and healthy living available for the many. And we do that through our products and services. Um, I was mentioning earlier, you know, making sure that our products are designed from sustainable materials, for example, looking at how we promote uh, what we call circular consumption, more responsible consumption. And an example there is how we've just launched our buyback and resell, so secondhand uh, IKEA furniture. The, the second pillar is how we are committed to becoming a climate positive and circular business. And that includes things like, um, you know, going all in on renewable electricity, making sure that we only procure renewable energy in our business, uh, which is the case for UK and Ireland, and also heating and cooling systems, which we're in the process of transforming at the moment. Um, and also very ambitious goals around becoming a circular business. We've got, you know, we've set ourselves a very challenging, but also very exciting target of becoming 100% circular business by 2030. And that means that um, one of the, um, the KPIs, if you like, the ladders up to that is that all our products will be made from recycled and recyclable materials. And, you know, that's 12,000 plus products. It's no small undertaking. And then also really importantly, again, um, it's also how we contribute to fair and inclusive society. You know, we can't divorce the human dimension and the community dimension from the environmental and the economic aspects of our business. And just to give a couple of examples there, it's how we make sure that, you know, gender equality is taken seriously in our business. And we're very proud about the fact that nearly 50% of our senior leadership are women. Now we're looking also in much more depth around, um, you know, racial equality, LGBT rights, um, but also how we work with communities, which was something that really uh, rose up the agenda during COVID and, and continues to this day. So that's just giving you a snapshot. I'm going to come back to a couple of things that you said there, but I think for lots of businesses just now where they feel they've come through a very difficult time, and we all have, that they then think, oh, God, I've got another thing to think about. I've got to think about being sustainable, and they have to think about a culture shift, perhaps. I mean, for IKEA, I guess you were already there. So how can you act as a role model to other businesses? I think we all have to... Um 
educate ourselves, if you like. And, and it is about mindset shifts and it is about developing a new lens through which we take decisions. And and you say IKEA was already there. Yes, absolutely. And of course, we have far to go and there are, we're a very big company. So there are parts of the business that are very much ahead. There are other parts of the business that needs to catch up. And, and that's just to sort of be honest about that and also to give other companies also a bit of a heads up to say that this is a journey that we're all on. Um, and we are learning, I am learning every single day. And, and I think that learner's mindset and to understand that we're bringing a lens to our everyday decisions is really critical. And we have conversations internally with our leadership, with our co-workers um, regularly at the moment around what this means for us. Um, and also what it means for our ongoing learning and development. But we as a company, you know, we're part of big coalitions. You know, we, we help co-found and drive initiatives like RE100, which is Renewable Energy 100, with commitment for ourselves and other companies to go 100% in on renewable energy, for example. Also EV100 is another aspect of that, um, where we're committed for all our last mile deliveries to be made by um, electric vehicles. And also we mean business as an example of, of business coalition. So, so we're working in that respect to work with stakeholders, to support other businesses, to share our learnings. And an example more recently from, from the UK is how we co-created and we are a founding member of the Climate Action Roadmap led by and coordinated by the British Retail Consortium. So again, we are a big business. You know, we, we have been around for a long time. We have established processes. We have teams and competence and smaller businesses in, in various sectors and in, in, in retail, for example, that I just mentioned might not have that luxury. So it is important to share and it is important to create these roadmaps so that others can learn um, not just from us, but that we can learn from others too. But it's something we have to do together. I mean, clearly, there's some very lofty commitments, if you like, to be achieved by 2030, including that one that you mentioned about becoming climate positive. But things like relating to plastics, for instance, I mean, I think probably everybody has things from Ikea that are plastic. I mean, are you, you're having to learn as well. Um, I mean, I guess when you're looking at things that you sell, are you now absolutely thinking about the environment as well? So we have, as, uh, as you mentioned, the climate positive ambition, again, sits uh, across the entire value chain. So just to give a little bit of an overview of that, we've, most companies understand that they need to take responsibility for their own operations. So, you know, that can be simple, practical things like switch to, switching to renewable electricity, um, you know, responsible heating and cooling systems, uh, waste management, all the rest of it. But of course, we all produce of some degree products and services um, through our businesses. And, and that's where we really have to completely transform how we think about it. So you mentioned plastics. We did phase out um, single-use plastics in our operations, restaurants, etc. last year. So that's a start. And part of the way that we look at our products, um, and I think what you're also suggesting, of course, is that customers buy products from us and it's how they look after those products in the long term, whether those are plastics or wooden products or what they what they may be. So, so this is part of our ambition to become also a circular business where you know if if we're we're now phasing in only uh, as an example recycled polyester so we have a goal to only use recycled polyester uh, which we're on track to meet and that also means that once a product is uh, you know 
a, an individual or a household uh, is moving on or they're done with a product, it's to look at how can, first of all, that product be reused once, twice, maybe even th a third, you know, three times. But also once it's coming to the end of its product life, is it recyclable and how do we support it becoming, you know, going back into the loop, if you like. And we talk about using materials in our products as material banks. So, you know, just to give you another example, at the moment, we've already closed the loop, which is what we call it when we bring products back into the product loop on, say, cardboard from our operations. So we reuse our cardboard and turn them into things like the back wall of Billy bookcases, for example. We also have products like, um, you know, very humble daily products like cookies, which is a little plastic um, storage box, but that's made from recycle plastics from our packaging as well. So hopefully what you can hear is that it's, it's looking at our responsibility from an operational perspective, from our product design perspective, but also how we work with, with customers to make sure that they can also um, you know, dispose of and, and resell products in the best possible way. Do you think there's a way of also helping customers um, look at their behaviour, if you like, of mm. consu about consumption? Um, I mean, I guess I'm I'm one of the IKEA customers mm. that always comes away with things that I never actually mm. realised I needed. Um, and it's about how you teach people to think about sustainable consumption. Mm. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. And I think there is actually, you know, there, there's a point of view. And it's what it's it's worth it's it's um, something to name, which is that people often uh, have a point of view that if products are affordable, surely they can't be sustainable. You know, they there is a perception, and we've researched this both from our perspective, but also there's uh, other companies have done similar research that perception is still that sustainable choices, sustainable products, is for the few, and it's a luxury, and it's expensive. So, so we've set out to really tackle this um, to make sure that sustainable options, products, knowledge and behaviours is available and accessible for the many at a, at a price people can afford. And again, we can do that because of our scale and we really optimise our supply chain so we can pass on the saving to our customers. And, and as an example, we've been running a programme in the UK, including in Scotland, called Live Largom. For, um, we're in the sixth year now, actually, and this is a behaviour change and awareness programme that we've done with our customers where we look at how can we choose this year up to 180 households who want to make a, a change in their daily life. They want to understand, you know, how can we um, consume more, more consciously? How can we uh, reduce our food waste at home? How do we start growing our own food? What are these simple daily behaviors that changes our awareness around consumption and how we consume? And we've learned so much together, which is actually that once you start to learn um, the impact of your decisions, but also learning that when you do batch cook, when you do um, cook from scratch and have the right storage, and you know what you have in the fridge, and you're not throwing away food because you've forgotten what's at the back, or you know, um, you're not quite sure what you've got in your freezer, then that really sparks a positive behavior across other parts of your life. So we've been running this program, as I mentioned now, for six years, and we've learned a lot from our customers around how as a retailer, we can scale up that knowledge and also how to portray those solutions about what people can do in their life at home. So, so it's a journey we're on together. Um, but I think what we really see, which is very positive, is of course that um, you could argue 
maybe because of COVID, people's awareness of their everyday life, of how to live day to day at home. Obviously, the, the role of home has really risen up the agenda of importance. We can see that now people are much more engaged and they want to make the right decisions and they want to be involved. So that's where we see we can play a really big role as a, as a partner in how to do that better. When you look at that and that whole kind of lifestyle choice, if you like, and how people live and how they can try and be sustainable in their own homes, has that fed into your product design as well? There's a lot of feedback loops. You know, when people are, when people are, every market's different, as you can imagine, you know, the the way people live in rural UK or cities or in Hong Kong or Scandinavia, you know, there's always quite a lot of um, local needs and relevance. But of course, there are also a lot of universal needs. So every market will have opportunities to test and try products with with their customers to see how to adjust it. Um, well, you know, one of the areas that IKEA leading on is small space living. You know, we see trends around the, the life at home, around having to really make the most of small spaces. And, you know, simple, simple example was that we had a, a kitchen trolley that was uh, on the same height as a table, but then realizing that actually when you, when you use this and customers give us feedback, when you use as a home with very limited space, what you actually need is to be for it to be a little bit lower so it fits under your table when you're not using it. So this is an example of how we iterate and take feedback from customers um, and feed it back into the design process. But we also learn from testing business models. So as an example, now that we've rolled out the buyback and resale, that was tested in three markets first. You know, So we tested it in Australia and in Portugal and also in, in Japan. So it's about understanding how are, how are customers locally relating to this service or product? How do we take back knowledge about how that makes sense? Um, and how do we change it accordingly? But it's uh, it's definitely an on, it's an ongoing dialogue for sure. Well, in terms of big undertakings, Hega, I particularly like IKEA's ambition to inspire and enable more than one billion people to live a better everyday life within the mm. limits of the planet by 2030. I mean, that's a huge ambition. Yes, what, what does it actually mean when it comes down to the the level of people? So this is where, um, you know, when I was mentioning earlier, part of our people and plan a positive strategy is one of those key pillars, which is about a mainstreaming um, sustainable and healthy living for the many. And uh, as you said, you know, we, we are that we're the biggest, we're the world's biggest home furnishing retailer. So if anyone should set very ambitious targets and have big ambitions about this agenda, it should be us, right? So, so we are a global company. We are in more than 36 markets. So the 1 billion target is really around the whole um, value chain. Our whole supply chain is how we reach customers in every market. It's how we work through our, our factories and our supply chain. And then we started to look at, well, we need to de-chunk that, right? We need to have a measurable approach. We need to understand what that means. So, you know, a kind of a roadmap. So we broke it down. Um, we've set ourselves a target this year to influence 100 million people directly um, and we have a, a, a very, I'm not going to go into all the technical details, but we have a very strong methodology around how we reach people online, how we reach people through the sale of our sustainable and healthy living products. It's how we reach people through our engagement programs like Live Largon. It's also measuring things like um, dialogue online. 
to really understand if we're influencing how people are you know, Googling for how can I live sustainable and healthy living lives. So, so we're measuring in all kinds of dimensions and adjusting ourselves accordingly. But it is about um, an evidence-based approach, as you say. It's something that I do think is absolutely critical because the, the risk now, of course, is that, um, and I, I dare say it, it's that sustainability can become a bit of a, of a trend and a bit of a uh, something that's a, a campaign message and we have to avoid that we have to have evidence based on the impact we want to make um yes about the 100 million people or the 1 billion but equally when we talk about reducing our, our climate um greenhouse gas emissions and our climate impacts um and there i want to highlight you know we've, we've signed up to science-based targets which is a way for an external framework that we need to adhere to and that we can measure ourselves against to really make sure that what we say is delivered and that we can measure it from a science perspective. So, it, so there's, a, as you see, there's, there's a whole kind of approach to how we make sure that we keep on track and, um, and deliver our promises. I mean, for many people, the pandemic and the lockdown and, and, you know, the very tangible thing of having to work from home has made them really rethink about how their work-life balance operates. Has that, ha- has that had an impact on the way that IKEA is thinking about their products and the way people live? Well, it's been huge, hasn't it? So who mm. could have foreseen, you know, what would, have, what would happen this year? What we do see, and this is again well documented now, a lot of a lot of amount of research has been done both by us and others, is of course that because of the the COVID pandemic, um, a the the role of the home and how we live at home and how we now consider life at home has really shifted, and taken on a whole new level of importance. Um, and also through that research and insight, we of, we of course also see that. Um, the COVID pandemic has also Im- impacted people um, disproportionately. And you do find that people on lower incomes with smaller spaces, maybe not the same resources as others to adjust, you know, they, they suffer more as well. And it's the same in relation to certain demographic and in, in certain jobs. So we see, of course, that the, the general perception around life at home has shifted. Um, we see that the way people are impacted is unequal. So we're certainly looking at, of course, how do we adjust, yes, to these new new um, needs around life at home. And just to highlight one area, the, the community engagement side was already something that we you know, had as part of our strategy, was something we, we did, but it's definitely come up much higher on the agenda. We're seeing that you know, we, we pride ourselves in being the leaders in life at home and, and that we believe that a quality of life at home is, is, a, is a right for the many, but of course we see that many don't have that. So just to share a little bit with you around how we approach the, the sort of first two rounds of crises is to really understand who are the, the, the most vulnerable in society and what is the role that we can play. So we, so we partnered with a range of charities ranging from the Red Cross around crisis response, but also um, really evolving how we work with our existing charity partnership with Barnardo's, for example, around understanding the really disproportionate effect on vulnerable families and young children, and also particularly care leavers that suddenly had no access to support um, and not having access to you know, the, their basic needs around life at home and, and, and their living conditions. So it has definitely come up higher on the agenda. Um, and we are actually developing a new approach now. You know, it's something that we all have to adjust to. We don't have all the answers and um, we haven't launched all our new approaches yet, but it's it's something that we're taking on 
in a, in a whole new way into our decision making. Yes, absolutely. You said something earlier, Heger, that really struck me about um, CSR not being mm. an add-on. It's just embedded into the mm. business. Um, is that something vital, do you think, in terms of going forward, that businesses shouldn't see CSR as just a, another layer that they need to think about, that it is just part of their business thinking? I think the, the opportunity, and I think this is really important, it's about seeing it as an opportunity. And you, you mentioned it earlier, and, and it is absolutely fair to to um, to highlight that it can be seen as complex, particularly if a, a company or an organization doesn't kind of come from that point of view or doesn't come from a purpose-led initi- uh, perspective initially. But of course, we know and and see that it's such a huge opportunity um, and potential for any business to integrate purpose and positive impact in, into everything we do. We also know that um, particularly younger people, younger generations, but also, you know, most of us want to work for organizations that do the right thing, that that uh, give back to society, that feels like it's having a positive impact. So from a kind of a even even positioning from that point of view, we can see it. And and the reason I mention the co-worker piece and the, the employer piece particularly is that, you know, people know it. They feel it if it's a campaign. They feel it and they understand it in the day-to-day if it's something that's just sitting on the side of a business. So the way that something comes alive is that it's integrated and embedded into what everyone's doing every day. And that, you know, we all live and breathe a certain purpose um, in our day-to-day decision-making. That said, you know, we have dilemmas. We also find challenging situations where we have to look at the return on investment. You know, we have to understand and and debate and discuss how we make and prioritize uh, our um, investments at times. But it's still coming from the point of view of, you know, are we serving the many and are we looking after creating a better everyday life? And if we're not, then then maybe we make a decision that's different. And we also see, and this is important for companies that maybe are dipping their toes into this direction, it's a huge innovation opportunity. And this is critical because, of course, we need to all transform and remain relevant for the future, whether that's digital transformation or whether it's about completely shifting our business models because, um, you know, people are changing in terms of consumption patterns and how people uh, shop and behave. So it's also a way to really bring in, it's the biggest innovation opportunity of, you know, a decade, arguably. Um, it's also something we have to we have to tackle. We are unlocking huge amount of creative potential in the business um, around entrepreneurial activity, new thinking by trying to tackle circular and climate positive challenges, for example. It's a, it, they're hugely both intellectually uh, and, and, and emotionally stimulating challenges to solve. Uh, and 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 purpose led, you know, purpose driven. At the end of the day, and then and then before I before I end my answer here, let's also be clear about the fact that legislation is pushing in this direction anyway. So companies can choose to be proactive and see it as an opportunity and drive ahead. Uh, it's interesting to see what you know Brewdog has been doing in Scotland. Very bold, very clear. What the what the message is there, you know, whatever you think about think about that, but very clear. Um, or you can be kind of dragged kicking and screaming because rules and legislations are pushing you in a certain direction. You know, it's, it's up to companies to choose, but I certainly know what I would choose. On a personal level, do you practice what you preach? I mean, have you had to think, <laughs> <laughs> this is what I do in my everyday life too? 
No, that's that's the classic question, isn't it? And absolutely, I I wouldn't be honest if I said I don't feel slightly added pressure. <laughs> I think <laughs> you know when I I think I I'd get scrutinised probably more than most. Um, but yes, I do. I, I try. I am certainly not perfect, and I, I think we are. All, we're all part of the solution and part of the problem, of course. Particularly with the way that we live lifestyles in the West, that's just something to accept. And it's a paradox, and it feels like a real dilemma, but it is is the reality. But yeah, no, absolutely. I've I've done a bit, and I regularly do a bit of a life audit. So you know, I'll just give some very very practical questions. Uh, sorry, uh, responses and examples. I. I've done a bit of a, um, I've done an audit on my, you know, my services and my contracts. So I switched to renewable electricity, which everyone can do. It's super easy and you generally save money that way. So it makes complete sense. You know, I have my phone subscription with a company called Fairphone, which is the only um, ethical and circular smartphone available on the market. And by the way, I'm not endorsing these brands. I'm just making examples of, of where I've made some decisions myself. You know, research suggests and shows that people are more likely to get a divorce than changing their bank. You know, that's interesting, isn't it? So I changed banks after 20 years with a certain bank and I did my research and I shifted my investments and my banking to what was at the time the most eth ethical bank on the high street. Um, I've gone mostly vegetarian and vegan. Um, I shop local. You know, when I do on a rare occasion eat meat, it's high quality, it's grass fed, it's locally sourced. So I guess it's that's not to say I'm perfect. I fly. My family's in Norway. You know, I've been very unfortunate to not see them more than once this year, but I probably do fly to Norway three times a year on average. Um, and I try to offset. Um, I try to you know, limit my flying. I don't own a car, you know, stuff like that. But I think it's, it's for everyone to sort of look at, like, what are the decisions I make every day? What can I do that are low hanging fruit? And there is so much low hanging fruit. Uh, and then what are the things that we kind of have to almost live with and make some difficult decisions? Like, you know, um, as you might expect, and this is probably a complete cliche, and I'm happy to be a cliche. You know, I loved to, to go once every two years to go to a yoga retreat in, on a tropical island once every two years. I've now accepted that that's not going to happen for me. You know, I'm not judging others that make those decisions, but actually I need to find something local that provides that same uh, experience. So, so it's, it's kind of dilemmas and decisions that we all can make every day, but there is so much in our everyday behavior and in our everyday shopping that we can do right now that um, has a positive impact. And I guess finally, I mean, you mentioned divorce there, um, <laughs> flat, flat pack furniture. Mm. Hey, have you had any disasters with flat pack furniture? Ooh, um, disasters. Well, I, I guess a few, not disasters, luckily. Um, I do remember some arguments in Ikea. <laughs> I think that's probably one of the few uh, I will share. Actually, I, we opened our Ikea stores in, in, um, in England on uh, on Wednesday this week. So as many did, you know, I was really desperate to stock up on lots of Christmas candles and a few other things and, and did go to Ikea. We, we managed to not argue in Ikea. I think there was a little discussion afterwards. But, uh, you know, uh, and yes, of course, we've had uh, trying to assemble double wardrobes is uh, possibly uh, a challenge that puts all kind all couples on, uh, on on a discussion path if you don't pay for someone to assemble them for you but what we see of course is that um, 
some people really enjoy their experience of putting their furniture together. If you, you might have heard of the IKEA effect, when people actually invest in assembling furniture, they feel more emotionally attached to their furniture and feel that they've invested more in them. But of course, uh, I will also um, definitely recommend service to be put to put, put furniture together for you uh, for those who don't particularly fancy it before Christmas. So now it's time for the rant of the week. That is the final part of the show. A chance for Mandy to get something off her chest, something that's been bothering her, a bee in her bonnet. Mandy, what is it that's been irritating you this week? Anything you'd like to discuss? I tell you, if I had a bee in my bonnet, I would be annoyed. Um, yeah, I suppose it's about the whole anti-vaxxing thing. And we've touched on this before, but um, I happened to be in the office last week when the cleaner came in and she probably spent the la- about an hour talking to me about how all the vaccinations were going to be impregnated with things that would mean that the government would be following us. And, mm. um, oh. and I guess while you could dismiss a lot of this as just um, stupid, really, and you could try and explain to people what the facts are, there's going to be a big issue about trust and communication when it comes to the vaccination programme. So um, I think I read a piece in The Lancet that said in the last year, something like 7.8 million new followers to all kinds of anti-vaxxing social media um, accounts had had gone up by that amount. Um, And it is a worry because a vaccination programme is really important. It's one thing getting the vaccine, but we all have to actually be inoculated. Yeah, it's kind of the, it's actually almost the perfect subject if you do want to spread misinformation, because obviously people are going to share on social media. People don't really have the don't always have the skills to critically interrogate this stuff. You know, I I just believe it works because I trust the process that it goes through. I don't understand how the vaccine works, and you know, it's it's, it's really really easy to scare people with this stuff, and fear is really really effective for spreading these sort of stories. In fact, in a way, yeah. I actually thought the, the most effective person I've seen so far in terms of kind of, you know, taking on those sort of narratives was Margaret Keenan, the 90-year-old the woman who was vaccinated. She said it was the best early birthday present she could have and it was safe for her and so everyone else should get it too. Yeah, but you don't even trust that she is 90. That's true, actually. I've just accused a 90, 90-year-old woman. She's 91 next week, actually, but I've accused a 90-year-old woman of lying about her age. I don't know why she'd pretend to be 90 if she wanted the vaccine. Yeah, if she lies about her age, how can you trust her about the vaccine? I'm also 90. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's been some discussion about trying to persuade the Queen um, to, to be inoculated publicly so people see it happening. I mean, I, I suppose I feel slightly embarrassed even discussing this subject because actually my son was born in 97 just when the whole Andrew Wakefield controversy was breaking around MMR and you know when you're faced with this little baby the idea of of putting vaccines into them becomes a scary prospect anyway and you know I did become quite overwhelmed by some of the chat around MMR not being safe and I guess my cop-out was that we were living in London at that time and my GP surgery had single vaccines Mm. so we were able to get the vaccines done but singly Um, but on this like, you know, and, and obviously the whole MMR and Andrew Wakefield paper has been hugely, well, has been discredited. So I think in this, I will absolutely be trusting the experts and the experts are saying it's safe and get it done and I'll be getting it done. Would you be happy to have it done live on the podcast? 
Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think the politicians should do something about that too. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts.